Is Christian teaching narrow and outdated? What is Christian teaching and orthodoxy? And how might we have strayed from it? Well, hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and welcome to the God's Story podcast. A very special guest on the show with us uh, this time is Trevin Wax, Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board and a visiting professor of theology at Cedarville University in Ohio in the States. Trevin was a missionary in Romania and has contributed to the Washington Post and Christianity Today. And his new book from IVP America, which is very timely in my view, is called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. Trevin, uh, hi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Now, before we get on to talk about the thrill of orthodoxy and what orthodoxy actually is, can I ask you, because there are going to be people listening to this podcast and people say this to me from time to time, particularly where I'm in New Zealand, doctrine doesn't matter. Uh, they say, you guys are into theology and theology divides, doctrine divides, what we need is love and Christian charity and it's get on with it. And uh, I want to ask you first up, how does doctrine make a real difference in life and how can false doctrine be toxic? Well, I guess it depends on what doctrines that we're talking about, uh, the impact that they would have on on, on the Christian life. Uh, whenever someone says doctrine divides, I think it's very easy to to immediately point out that doctrine is actually what unites. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the if you look at uh, the the common ground between the three major wings of the Christian Church, uh, I'm referring to uh, um, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. There is a base of Trinitarian doctrine that unites all of those communions. And then when you look at the the particular communions themselves and the the different denominations and groups, those groups are united by what they believe. In fact, you'll find faith statements on on websites, uh, you know, for a church to be able to say, this is what we affirm, this is what we we believe, this is what we come together to to celebrate. So when someone says that doctrine divides, uh, there is a sense in which, yes, people are divided over doctrine, um, but uh, doctrine also unites. And, and when someone says doctrine is divisive and therefore we should just focus on what we do, well, to that, I think we have to to raise another question. How do we know what to do apart from doctrine? <laughs> doctrine is what gives us the, the understanding of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. People say, you know, just live like Jesus. Well, I think your view of who Jesus is and what he did and how he lived and exactly in what ways you might be able to live like him and in what ways the way he lived is unrepeatable, that matters for how we live the Christian life. And so, uh, I, I just I think it's a very superficial rejection of of doctrine that we see in some of that that mindset that comes out so often today. Yes, uh, we're surrounded by pragmatism here in in New Zealand, and the New Zealanders will say, "Ah, but it's true." I'm I feel I'm, as though I'm surrounded by pragmatism. Why is pragmatism so dangerous in our churches? Do you think? Well, I don't think pragmatism is dangerous as a starting point for reaching our society. Uh, If it is true, and I think it is, that in many Western societies, the first question people ask about religion is not, is it true? They ask, does it work? (laughs) Does it it help in some way? And this is not something new. I was just, uh, I'm preparing for some lectures to to give in uh, in Yorkshire next month um, uh, that uh, is relying on C.S. Lewis. And um, Lewis was saying this back in the 1940s, that he saw this turn 
in uh, in 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 the upper, more educated classes of of Great Britain, um, toward the question of religion being only seen for its its beneficial therapeutic value, rather than the question of whether or not what a religion teaches is true or not. Uh, and and so I it's that's not that's not new. And I don't think pragmatism on its own is necessarily uh, the worst place to begin with someone. I think if someone's asking the question, does Christianity work? Then I think we need to ask them, well, what do you mean by work? And what do you mean by is it making your life better or beneficial? Let's start with that um, and then move into those deeper questions of is Christianity true or false? At some point, you can't put off those questions forever and be authentically Christian. Uh, the, the the Christian faith is about events. And so uh, so I think pragmatism is, uh, if that is the culture that we've been placed in, if that's dominant in the society that we're called to reach, then we need to begin where people are. But we do need to, uh, the, the danger is that we stay there and that we, we, we imagine a kind of Christian life that is only focused on uh, on on religion being helpful, rather than the objective reality of Christianity being true. The martyrs did not go to their deaths for a helpful and beneficial religion. They went to their deaths because they were convinced that there was a rock solid foundation beneath the confession they made as they were thrown to the lions in some cases. Yes, the mention of the martyrs is, is vitally important and crucial and absolutely true what you say. Have we have we lost our fire, do you think, in the church, in the, in the Western, much of the Western church? Have we lost our passion for the Lord Jesus? Have we lost our passion for Christian orthodoxy? Have we lost our passion for Scripture? I think it, passion is connected to our confidence. And I I, I think what the... the, the sort of spiritual malaise that has settled in over many Western churches, I'm afraid, is this is this lack of confidence, if not in the truth of Christianity, in the goodness of Christianity. Is is Christianity really good for the world? Not just good for me personally and 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 sort of the, you know, it's nice to have people that I meet up with and that, you know, bring over casseroles when <laughs> someone in my family's ill or there's a, a a death, or it's nice to have people to marry and bury and, you know, have the the sort of formalities and to mark the events of of life, those cultural markers. Uh, that's not really the the question. The question is, is Christianity and what it teaches broadly good for the world? And in and and I think that's one of the the things that we have to uh uh, to go back again and 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 ask, is it possible that our lack of passion is connected to a lack of confidence in the goodness and beauty of Christianity? And if that's the case, we should ask the question of how we regain that. Mm. And mm. Uh, and I think you can regain that by trying to manufacture it in some way, uh, by innovating or trying to change Christianity in some way, or you can try to regain that by going back to what Christianity is all about and uh, going back to the foundation. Yes, and that's what really your book's all about, isn't it? It's about rediscovering the passion and the joy and the truth of orthodoxy. What what is what excites you? I mean, you let's take the title of the book, "The Thrill of Orthodoxy." I think it's a great title. Uh, what thrills you about orthodoxy? What what gets you passionate, and excited about Christian truth? Well, there's there's two things. One is that it's it's there. We have deep roots here, and I think we are in a in a in an era in which people are longing for a sort of rootedness. Um, uh, if, if, if the 
the the cultural winds are blowing so fiercely in so many different directions. It's hard to know what's up. It's hard to know what's down. It's hard to know what's true or false online. There's so much misinformation. There's political polarization in many churches. I mean, there's just so many challenges facing the church right now. I I think in a time like that, when it's it's often it's so easy to lose your sense of orientation. What's thrilling to me is to say is to go back to Christianity because we say, uh, no, there are ancient roots here and there are basics and foundational pillars of something that has stood the test of time. And I may not know everything that's true or false about everything going on in the government right now or politically, what's the best way forward or what exactly this means or that means for the church at large. But I know this has endured and this lasts. And this is, uh, so there's, I think there's a, a thrill in knowing that you have, that you have come up against something real, something that's there. It's not something you've invented. It's something you've discovered. It's there. So I think there's thrill in that. But then I would just go a step further than that and say that really the thrill is in meeting the one in whom these doctrines describe. Um, it, the, the, the whole point of, of orthodoxy and theology is not to to, to, to fill our heads, but to, to bow our heads in, in adoration and worship of the one who has saved us. When, when we're uh, parsing the intricacies of our of our view of Jesus Christ and who he is and exactly how he relates to the Father and the Spirit and uh, and what it means for, for Jesus to be God. Those are intriguing and important questions, but the thrill is in coming to know the Christ mm. uh, that we are confessing. It's in coming to know the God uh, that that we confess as, as one God in three persons. Uh, I, I think that's really where the, the thrill, it's in the encounter with God himself. Mm. Yes, and you write about, uh, I, lo- I love the way you write about the faith, because you write about Christianity as an adventure, uh, which I've, I found really appealing. Now, what do you mean by that? How is Christianity an adventure? Well, Christianity, properly understood, invests significance into all of our ordinary activities and choices. Uh, I, when I when I talk about Christianity as a rollicking adventure with opposition and with uh, starts and stops and almost like a roller coaster, I, I, I immediately follow that up in the book by saying, it's not going to feel like that all the time. A lot of us are, you know, you, you may have a job where you're clocking in and out and may not really be satisfied with it. Maybe you have some challenges in your family life or you've got some, you know, you, you're, you're mustering up the uh, the energy to uh, to to pray daily to read scripture. I mean, so much of the of the Christian life or just life in general is is made up with what we would consider to be mundane activities. Uh, and so you could say, well, that doesn't really feel like an adventure. And to which I would say, you're right, it doesn't, and it and it necessarily it not always will feel like an adventure. And yet, if you truly understand what Christianity teaches, and you truly believe there are etern- there is eternal significance to the choices that we make, and if you truly believe that God is working in you through his spirit to conform you into the image of his son. There is something going on in your daily acts of routine obedience that is is more than 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 you can even comprehend. You you are I mean just just take prayer for example. A quiet prayer in your bedroom or at your desk presses you up against the thin space between this earth and another dimension and you are surrounded by awesome wonders that you are maybe completely unaware of. You're you're talking to the, the king of the universe as your father. You have the son next to you interceding for you and the spirit speaking through you. I mean, right there in that moment, if you really believe what the Bible says about prayer 
as boring and mundane and 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 as as you know at times just uh, you know non-adventurous as it may feel if you really believe what the bible teaches about this there's no there's no real way of walking away from that and concluding that there is something wonderful happening whether or not you can understand it or or sense it all the time yes. and so that's what i want people to 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 understand Yes, I've, I've, prayer is thrilling, really, because you never know how it's going to be answered. If it's going to be answered and when it's answered, it's a thrill to see how God answers it. I've, I've, That's very true. Uh, very so true. it's a real adventure there. And now how, because uh, you, you write about heresy and how churches can drift into heresy, but I wonder how and in what ways do we all, or are we all tempted to drift from the truth? And how can we drift from the truth without even realizing we're drifting from the truth? Well, I think it's easy to drift if you if you've ever been to the ocean and you've been out in the waves and you recognize, you know, you look back at the shore and it looks like your things have moved when actually you've drifted imperceptibly, you know, with the with the currents of the ocean. It's just very easy to drift. Uh, and so you find yourself having to con continually, consistently recenter yourself with wherever you left everything on the shore, you know, like that's a I think that's a common practice that a lot of people have experience with. Drifting is a lot like that. There are cultural currents of which you may be completely unaware, and if you don't, if if you don't take seriously the responsibility of recentering yourself, realigning yourself with God's word, and 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 refocusing your your mind and heart weekly, uh, in 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 worship with with other believers, if you're not if you're not doing those activities, you can can drift without even without even realizing it. And so I, I think there are different ways that people drift. I, I think there's there's not that many ways, but I, they, there, there tends to be several that come up. One is you, you could drift just by losing your passion and excitement and interest for Christianity. Another way you could drift is by focusing only on the practical and, and not really thinking about doctrine or thinking that there's any relevance to it. Um, you could also drift by being very unsettled with what Christian Christianity teaches uh, to where you, you know, you, you are continually and forever in a state of wrestling with these truths um, and and questioning and wondering whether they're truly good and beautiful, uh, which I think many Christians go through a season like that. But if that's the the if we're content to live in that space uh, for too long, that can precipitate a drift. And then and then finally, I think one of the ways we drift is by being so focused on the impact, the implications of the gospel, that we lose our excitement for telling others about Jesus and seeing people people's lives change it's it's easy to get focused on the the tangible things we can do like the you know feeding the hungry or uh reaching out and being generous to uh, uh disadvantaged people or you know whatever it might be fighting for justice in society or whatnot it's very easy to to, to put something else other than the cross at the center of our proclamation and so um those are some ways in which I think with good intentions even we could drift without even knowing it in what ways did the, because uh, we're going to come on and talk about the New Testament writers, in what ways did the New Testament writers think that doctrine mattered? For assuredly, they do think that doctrine matters and warn against and constantly warning against the dangers of false teaching and, and even associating with people who are teaching falsehoods. Well, I think the one of the key takeaways from what we read in the, the words of the apostles is that they're they're focusing constantly on sound doctrine. Um, which is another way of saying healthy doctrine, life-giving doctrine. The, the reason that I think the apostles take this so seriously is because they recognize that false doctrine is like poison. Mm. It can kill you. Yeah. Uh, it can, it can certainly make you sick. Uh, and so, but, but, but health, 
healthy doctrine is like a tonic. It's 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 like it's medicinal. It, there's a there's a sense in which it it helps to keep us healthy. Um, and so I I think the uh, the apostles are con- consistently lifting up good doctrine and and calling out false doctrine because they recognize the damage it can do to to one's soul. And and that is that is something that I think a lot of us in the West have a hard time getting around because we see religion and doctrine is in the realm of values, personal values, private personal faith. And if you see doctrine like that, then just everything is basically, well, you know, you just, you have your truth and everyone else has their truth or you have your version of Christianity and other people have their version of Christianity. There's no, the apostles, the apostles don't have any time for that. That's, that's just not the way they think of doctrine. And I think we do ourselves a disservice to not listen to their voices and read their letters on their own terms and really try to get into the world of how they're seeing this rather than us picking and choosing what we like from that and and putting it into our world. Yes, they take it very, very seriously, don't they? I mean, Paul, in his letters to uh, Timothy, uh, absolutely uh, always very, very uh, concerned about it in Ephesians and all of them, really. Uh, He's very, very firm about it indeed. How important are the early creeds to the church? And should we say them more often in our church services? You know, the Nicene Creed, I love the Athanasian Creed. I wish we could say the Athanasian Creed in our church every, nearly every week. I really do. Well, it's a, it is a beautiful creed and the Apostles' Creed as well. Uh, I, I think the Athanasian is a little lengthy. Yes, I was going to say that. It, it, it makes it a little say that? It's very long. And I said, yeah, but it's yes. very important. <laughs> it, it, it is important. And I think there are some churches, I can't remember which denominations I looked up, that say the Athanasian Creed about once a year. Yes, I think we used, I, I, yeah, I think, I think we used to do the, the Athanasian Creed yes. a couple of times a year, you know, just to make sure we'd covered it really. But it's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Well, um, you know, the creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are, are certainly more, you, they're, they're, they're more easily accessible for liturgical use. And, you know, different churches have different traditions as to the place of creeds or whether or not creeds are, are important to, to use. Um, I think creeds are, I think these particular creeds are, are wonderful because of how biblical they are. Um, they, you know, a, a lot of times people want to put up a, a wall between the Bible and the creeds. And I just, I, I would, I want to, uh, certainly I'm a Protestant and want to affirm sola scriptura. And I believe that scripture is the supreme authority over creeds and councils. Uh, but also would, would, would want to say with, when it comes to um, these, these early creeds, uh, the, 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 the reason that they have endured and they have stood the test of time and they have, there's so much widespread agreement on these is because of how rooted they are in scripture. I mean, it's, they are glorious summaries of what just of what the Bible teaches. And so um, they, they derive their authority from scripture and then are wonderful guardrails for us to, to use. I wish more churches would, um, uh, I, I wish more churches that are used to saying these creeds would do more teaching on them mm. to show, to show how they connect to, to, what the implications of of the creeds are. So, for example, if you're in in a church tradition that's used to saying the Apostles' Creed every single week, I, I mean, you you ought to, you know, I, I wish leaders and teachers would do a, a a better job of explaining what does it mean when we say that we believe in the uh, God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. What does it mean that God is Creator? That He has created us? That He has created everything in the world? That what what it means for us? Uh, there are all sorts of uh, of implications there that even get to the very heart of what it you know some of the controversies today about you know what it means to to be human 
to to have bodies, things like that. So I, I think churches that are more liturgical that use the creeds more, I wish they would um, unpack their their significance more often. And churches that don't use them, I wish they'd incorporate them in somehow into the the, the life and, and teaching of the churches. It's just it's like health giving, yeah, true, mm, yeah, and, and, and worth using. Yes, and Athanasius, of course, a great hero of the faith who basically stood alone uh, in his time uh, against, was it Arius? Yes, it was. Yes. It was the, Alexander was the first one, and then Athanasius stood up against Arius. And, you know, Athanasius died before um, he really was able to see all of the fruit of his labor there. Uh, he, he died at a time when it wasn't clear which faction was going to win. Now, there never was, it was never a, a battle to the death as if, you know, the church was completely split down the middle on this question. It was always the vast majority of the, the Christian church was orthodox on the question. Um, you, you had, you just, you had some, some people in some very powerful and influential places that were either divided or either wrong on the question or saying, you know, we should be able to just get along and not have to take a position on the question. And um, and Athanasius, though, was one who recognized if we get this wrong, we are being fundamentally untrue to our confession and salvation goes out the window. If Jesus is on the side of the creature, not the created, uh, but not the creator, then we um, then, then we lose we, we lose everything. And I mean, it came down to the point it hinged on one vowel and one Greek word, you know. So, I mean, this is one of those, not every vowel is important as that one, but it, it was an extraordinarily important moment for the church to ensure that our confession of who Jesus is was was rooted in Scripture and was uh, um, faithful to what what the, the eyewitnesses and the apostles taught. Now, you write, we're fast running out of time. We've got about five minutes, I think, five or six minutes. You write, uh, the Orthodox are out front because we're also behind. Now, I love that. Can you unpack that for us, please? Why are the Orthodox out front because we're also behind? So this is a way of, of trying to change our conception of the, 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 the calendar, so to speak. There's a myth out there that there's a sort of myth of progress and that you know things are constantly developing and moving and innovating and doctrinal innovations are the way of the future and um, and, you know, you've got to, there are all these trends and things that you need to be completely aware of and following. And this is the way that the history is going. And when I say the Orthodox are out in front, I want to just you've got this. There's this mindset out there that the those who are on the, the vanguard of progress are out front and the Orthodox are just sort of kicking and screaming and digging their heels in and being dragged along finally into the modern era. And uh, I, I just think that picture is very false. It's very false. Um, over and over again, orthodoxy is contested, and then orthodoxy wins. It happens again and again throughout history. And it, it's, it, you know, Chesterton talked about how the Christianity kept dying and then kept rising again because it knew the one who had come out of the grave. You know, so I, the reason I say that we are in front because we're also behind is to say that um, we need a different calendar altogether. Uh, orthodoxy is is out front because. Come by at some point, the trends will turn around, and and the those who are on the vanguard of progress the, the fall off the wagon, and then you've got the orthodox back in the front seat again. And it's just this is the way that that this uh, has, has tended to happen throughout throughout history. And so we need a different conception of time and progress. And I think orthodoxy uh, gives us confidence that the enduring truths of Christianity will persist. 
Yes, I mean, you could say that about much of liberal theology, which held sway for the last couple of hundred years, um, certainly in my denomination and my tradition. And yet, look around now, where are the traditional liberal theologians? They are, that tradition is, is it's emptied pews and they're closing their churches. So, And then you have the, the question of who's left. Well, the yeah. Orthodox are there out front. <laughs> so yes. it's just, it's the, it, it, again, it, connected to the global church and the church throughout history, uh, uh, running all the way back into the pages of God's word, the, I, that's the place to take your stand. And I think we can have confidence in the goodness, beauty, and power of Christian truth. And that should be that should be what we, that should be our aspiration for the future. Final question, Trevin. Uh, we could talk all day about this. What do you say to a listener who's thinking, oh, maybe I'm a bit, uh, I've got a bit uh, uh, relaxed or I've got, I've got a bit cool, I've, I've lost the passion, I've lost the fire of my faith. Where do they go, apart from reading your very fine book, where else can they go to f- f- get, regain the thrill of orthodoxy? You know, I that's that's a terrific question. I, I, I think one of the things that would be really tempting for a lot of people would be to, to try and find something new that's going to jumpstart the faith. And I, my my preference would be to say, no, look at what's already there, maybe already incorporated into your own life, and rediscover the significance and the adventure of that itself. Mm-hmm. You know, church going, for example, it's something, you know, we sometimes take for granted and certainly did until we weren't able to during the the season of the of COVID and whatnot. But um, you know, there's there's more going on there than than people realize. And so I want to to point us back to those foundational spiritual disciplines um and to and to put us back at in in those and and to look for the significance in those things rather than coming along with with something new and something innovative and enticing that's going to suddenly jumpstart and solve all of the problems about spiritual passion um i would so i would say those disciplines and then i would also say one of the things to keep in mind is um you are most likely to be excited about your faith when you're sharing it Mm-hmm. And that comes very difficult to people um, in a pluralist society. I realize it's it's more and more challenging. Um, but but when I think about you know just even discipling your children and and teaching them the truths of Christianity, if if for example you have children or grandchildren and you've lost your own passion, to watch their eyes light up as they come to see who Jesus is will make Jesus more precious to you. So don't don't miss the opportunities to savor the truth of Christianity in but through the the practice of sharing it and seeing it come alive in the hearts and lives of others. Bless you, uh, Trevin. Terrific. Thank you for that. Uh, his new book, Trevin Wax, we've been talking to, and his new book from Intervarsity Press, IVP America, is called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith, and it assuredly is an adventure. It's been an adventure for me for 30 years, and quite a wild adventure at times, and no doubt it has been for you too, Trevin. It certainly has. I've, if I had known every all the things that God was going to do and places he would take me and how it would look, I would have not believed it. Mm, Same here. So, uh, and thank you to our creative team at Liquid Edge Creative, who sponsor our podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Trevin, thank you so much. Brent, thank you for having me. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. 
Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.